Bookmark with Lee Chambers on Cambridge 105 Radio. With Heifer's Bookshop, the great Cambridge bookseller since 1876. Our Hello and welcome to Bookmark. This is the show that talks about books and writing with a local slant. Our featured guest is Athene Donald talking about her book, Not Just for the Boys, Why We Need More Women in Science. We'll hear from Livy Michael chatting about her novel, Reservoir, and Carrie Hadley-Price will be talking about her novel, God's Country. Athene will give you a proper introduction in just a moment, but first of all, welcome to Bookmark. Hello. We'll be talking about your book, of course, in a lot of detail, but just a little bit about your background. First, you're a physicist. I am. Was it always going to be physics for you? Yes, I think so. I was introduced to physics at school when I was about 13, and I just fell in love with it. There's no science in the family. There's no obvious reason for it, but it suited me. And what was it you fell in love with? It made sense of the world around me. That's what I enjoyed. Biology seemed to be memorising facts. I wasn't that interested in smoke bombs or something for chemistry. So physics was what I took to. And soft matter physics is your specialism, one of them anyway. What is that? It's again, it's very much the physics around us. So, so much of what we meet in everyday life, be it food or paint plastics in the home, all those would come under the heading of soft matter physics. And I'm interested in how their internal structure relates to how they perform in practice. And you've put in the book, as well as looking at at physics and the, the things that we'll be discussing in more detail, you've put some of your own personal experiences in science in the book. Was that a big decision to include them? Because they're not always complimentary about the field that you're working in, the people you're working with. That's certainly true. I have a a blog where I've written some of these stories before and I have learnt that the personal really resonates with people, particularly with young women in science, you know, who've already entered the scientific ladder and may be finding it tough. So I think the more difficult decision was when I started writing about these things on my blog, which was back in 2010. And at that point, I made a very conscious decision not to write anonymously, to, to be explicit. But it's tricky and I try I try to make my anecdotes such that people can't identify who I'm talking about. And what's been the response? So far, I mean, the book's only been out a, a week as we record it. So far, it's been very positive. Um, I did an event in Selwyn earlier this week. I did an event for some Churchill alumni also this week. And in both cases, it seems to have gone down well. What was interesting for me was that one would have thought that things were easier for women since you entered this field. But actually, you were saying in many ways, there are certain aspects that were easier for you back then than for women now. I think that's that's right. I mean, there were many things that were difficult, but it seemed inevitable at that point. I mean, certainly when I came up to Cambridge as an undergraduate and there were no mixed colleges, there were only 10% of women across the entire university. And obviously, the numbers have vastly changed. But it seems to me that we still have ingrained problems that just having more women in the system is not solving. And in some ways, I think, is making it worse. I think people get very sensitive and sometimes quite rigid. I was able to to lead my life in quite a flexible way because no one thought, how do we cope with a woman with a child, for instance? And so my husband and I could make it up, if you like. And now now you have to be much more regimented and explicit about what you're doing. 
Well, I'm really looking forward to talking to you about your book, but we'll hear your first choice of music now. Is music important to you? Music is important to me, particularly classical music. It's always been important to me. And the first piece I've chosen is March of the Women by Ethel Smythe, who was an early female composer, if you like, and I think didn't get as much credit then as she should have done. It was written for the suffragettes, and it's quite stirring. And that was March of the Women by Ethel Smythe, played there by the Suffrage Symphonia, the first choice of music on Bookmark today from our featured guest, Dame Athene Donald. Dame Athene is Professor Emerita in Experimental Physics and Master of Churchill College, Cambridge. In 2009, she was awarded the L'Oreal UNESCO Award for Women in Science and in 2019 received the Lifetime Achievement Award at the Times Higher Education Awards. She was the University of Cambridge's first gender equality champion and has been involved in numerous initiatives concerning women in science. Not Just for the Boys, Why We Need More Women in Science came out this month. Kirkus Review called it a sharp indictment of male privilege and an urgent appeal for a more inclusive practice of science. I found it absolutely fascinating, this book, and enjoyed it very much. I suppose before we get into the detail, we we ought to sort of look at the bigger picture and just define a few things. So what exactly are you meaning by science? What subjects come under that heading for you? So I would use, I suppose, the definition STEM, science, technology, engineering and mathematics. And it's it's a challenge because science, including engineering, is not uniform, if you like. The lack of women is much more noticeable in subjects like my own of physics, in engineering, in computing, in biology. Far more women start off, at least, in their careers in that direction. So it, it's variable, and I use science quite loosely. And what are the figures that we're talking about? So in engineering, it's, there was this slogan, if you like, from one of the engineering societies, 9% is not enough, might have crept up from 9%. But that's kind of the portion in the engineering profession. In physics at A level, which is the entry point in England for both physics and engineering, we're typically talking about 20 to 25% girls taking the subject. So they don't start off. And we'll look at why that is and what can be done to improve that. But I suppose the, the other thing is the importance of improving that, why we need to do that. You say we cannot afford to keep or actively drive women out of science if the global solutions to the problems we face are to be confronted and overcome. We need different ways of thinking about the problem. Yes, I think diversity of all kinds is important if we're to come up with the best solutions. If everyone in a team thinks the same way, well, we know what groupthink is and it's not going to lead to innovation and it's not going to lead to the best solutions. And I suppose it's a self-fulfilling prophecy, isn't it? If we don't have women in the sciences, young girls don't see that, then it's not something they think they can aspire to. Exactly. I think the fact that the national curriculum is singularly lacking in examples of female scientists is not a good start. They are likely to see in their textbooks pictures of white men. And that, I think, is also a deterrent. The evidence on how important role models are is not entirely clear cut, but I think it it is important to realise that there is a path for you, even if you're not going to identify with any single individual. Well, Marie Curie is the role model that's often held up. And interestingly, in the book, you say maybe she's not that great a role model. Can you explain why? Because she 
lived a very extreme life, if you like, at a time when it was practically impossible for women to get education. She left her home country of Poland, went to Paris. Uh, she worked under extreme difficulties. The the university she was attached to didn't really accept her. She was working, I think, in an outbuilding or something that was unheated. Uh, and so everything about her life was kind of extreme. And I don't think that's a good role model. If you're 12 and thinking about what kind of life you're going to lead, you don't want to think you're going to end up in an outbuilding. And, and there were other women scientists that, ca- that can be held up. I mean, you name several in, uh, in your book. Um, often they were undermined or we don't know about them. They worked as assistants or their work was claimed by men. And you talk about this, the Matilda effect, which I hadn't heard before, which I'm sure women everywhere will recognise. Can you explain? So that's the example of when a woman does a piece of work, but it somehow gets lost, that it's down to her. And it's an equivalent thing, which many women probably will recognise, and probably some men, when a woman says something at a committee and it's ignored. And then a man says it and everyone says, oh, that's absolutely splendid. And it is utterly infuriating. So it's that kind of behaviour multiplied up. Uh, you also talk about the support of men and the support you had from your own husband. And you say at the beginning, this book is partly for men, because while you're also addressing policymakers and women, men can help this change too. Absolutely. I think I think that's one thing that's changed across a lot of these issues, not just women in science. The idea of men as allies, men who stand up for women, for instance, at that committee meeting I was just talking about, if a man says, hang on a minute, Athena just said that, it is so much easier than the person themselves saying, hang on a minute, I said that. So I think it is important. I think also we can't change the system unless the men understand there is a problem. They need to think it through for themselves. And I've seen some splendid examples of really committed men doing things that make an enormous difference and that will then change the society for everyone. And I think it's important to realise that if you are trying to combat um, bullying, say, so it's very easy to think, oh, it's a a male supervisor bullying a young female student. Well, no, not necessarily. It could be a woman bullying a man. It could be a man bullying a man. So changing the culture so that these bad practices vanish will help everyone, I believe, except possibly the bullying man. (laughs) And you have said yourself that you couldn't have had your brilliant career without the support of your husband. Absolutely. He, he, we got married quite young and he's always been there, always been very supportive. And I think if you are in a relationship and your partner does not support you, it becomes very hard. He's a mathematician. Do you think it helps that he knows the pressures to do with this industry? I, I'm sure it does. And I'm sure you know, it also helped that we sort of understand each other's work up to a point. I think that does help. Thank you, Athene. We'll come back to you in just a moment now, but we'll take a little sidestep and hear from Livy Michael. Livy Michael's previous novels have won the Arthur Welton Award, the Society of Authors Award twice, the Geoffrey Faber Memorial Prize and been shortlisted for numerous others. Her latest novel, Reservoir, came out in March and The Independent have already called it their book of the year. And when I spoke to Livy, I started by asking her to tell me what the novel's about. Well, it's a psychological thriller. It's contemporary. I would say that it's about kind of memory and secrets and reinvention and really what we do with the the painful past, those aspects of the past that we'd prefer to keep hidden. 
because sometimes, especially in today's society, I think they have a way of coming out. And this is about a woman who meets somebody from her past and it's about her discovery of herself, really, is it? Yes. I mean, my main protagonist is Hannah and she goes to this conference. She's a psychotherapist. And we gradually discover that Hannah herself has something very painful in her past. But at this conference, she meets someone that she knew in childhood when the kind of painful event happened and someone who's really the last person she would ever want to meet again. And even worse than that, it seems that this person has an agenda and is kind of looking to expose this secret for their own reasons. And I love the fact that you start, bang, straight in with that meeting. It, it's it's real kind of impactful from the beginning. Thank you. Yes, I mean, I, I like thrillers. I love them, actually. I read them and I love that kind of page-turning quality. I think all books need suspense and... Um, particularly in the crime or thriller genre, you get that kind of pure suspense feel, that thing of, I think we all need that from books, don't we? That sense that you can get lost in them, really. Definitely, definitely. This area of, I suppose, hidden memories of subconscious, it can be quite controversial. Yes, I mean, I think um, I ended up doing quite a bit of research into this. So in neuroscience today there's they speak about the unreliability of memory the way that memory tells us a particular kind of narrative and anyone who's ever had a disagreement with a family member over how they remember a certain thing from their past will know that it's you know it's controversial in itself but I find particularly myself that painful memories can recur unexpectedly and suddenly and I'm wondering I end up wondering why are they doing that you know why am I remembering this now what can I possibly do about this thing that I've kind of managed so badly in the past and I also think that as a nation and politically we're kind of coping with a lot of historical anger in society and wondering what we can possibly do, if anything, to make amends. And I notice it's told in um, third person, but close third. I'm guessing that you didn't do it in first person. Did you ever um, think about that? I'm guessing you couldn't really do it in first person because she's finding out about herself as as the novel continues. I think that's right. And I kind of wanted some distance as well between myself and the protagonist. So Hannah is a psychotherapist. We both work at universities, but my subject is English, and it did mean I had to do quite a lot of research. I just wanted to create someone who wasn't me, who wasn't like me. I know you can do that with the first person, but I think it's easier to establish a little bit of distance in the third and you write in lots of different formats, uh, Livy. So you short stories, novels for young adults. When you get an idea for uh, something to write, is it obvious to you what form it should take or what audience it's for? I think that's been, you know, a huge question throughout my writing career. And some people have seen it as a problem because I think today we're increasingly focused on creating a brand and I understand that so that when the reader goes to look for books under your name they know roughly what to expect and really 
I don't know why I haven't stayed with the one genre. Like you say, I've written for children. That was when my own children were younger. But I've also written historical novels because I find history, many aspects of history, in one way, it's a way of, it's whatever broadens your own horizons. I think the act of writing would be very tedious if you didn't feel that you were kind of learning and expanding your own horizons while you were doing it. So, yes. And does it feel, when you're writing in different form formats, does it feel different to you? Yes. In a way, I'm more nervous of the contemporary because the contemporary world as we know it changes so rapidly and is so diverse and complicated that um, you're in danger of dating it in one way. You know, you can mention a particular kind of phone and that phone has gone out of um, circulation completely by the time the book goes into print. You can't generalise about anyone's experience in this society because it is so diverse, you know, and... I'm very aware that I'm writing from my own very particular perspective on it. So the past, the past is quite difficult to write about in the sense that there is all the research, and I'm sure you found that with your own novel. But at some point, you can kind of draw a line under that research, whereas capturing the present moment is its own peculiar challenge, I think. Drawing a line under the research can be quite hard, can't it? Because you can oh, end up yeah. going down rabbit holes on oh, yeah. uniform colour and things like that. Absolutely, you know, and I always tell my students to try and get the story first and then they know what it is they want to research because otherwise you would end up researching, trying to research the whole of the 19th century, you know, or, or the 15th century or whatever. And it's too huge, yeah. And you're working with salt, on this novel yeah. uh, they're a, a great small publisher to work with they absolutely are and um, in a sense I feel like I've come full circle because my very first novel was published by Sepra and Warburg right back in 1992 so at that time Sepra and Warburg were an independent it was a small firm and you have the sense of their personal investment in you and I very much get that from Salt Salt are you know, they've done an amazing job over the years. I think they are technically the longest standing independent. So they've been going since the 1990s. Whereas, as you will know, many small independent companies sadly kind of crumple under economic pressures. So in between, I've been with several of the big corporate publishers. And that's been, you know, fascinating and great experience in many ways. But unless you're kind of at the top of the tree with the corporate publishers, you do get the sense that they're not able to invest in you in quite the same way. 1992, my goodness, the publishing landscape has changed such a lot since then, hasn't it? No, it really has. That I could write books about. I mean, I, I've taught it. It, re it could not be more different. I did not know what the internet was at that point. You know? <laughs> and there were these small publishing firms who were named after the people who were still there, you know. There was a Mr. Secker and a Mr. Warburg, you know. It's now vastly corporate. Well, it is in one sense. At the same time, you're getting a lot of different publishing initiatives from a lot of different quarters, and that's good, I think. That keeps a variety going. Do you think it's better for the the writer, better for the reader? I mean, I would say it is. Yes, I do think that because I tend to think that corporate publishing is a little dominated by something called the Nielsen Book Scan. You know, so mm -hmm. 
the Nielsen book scan tells them at any one point what is selling and what is selling really well and what's selling best in any one genre. Therefore, they try and replicate that success all the time. Now, the independents, I think, are more focused on finding something that is more distinctive and someone that hopefully they can work with over a period of time. I mean, that's a bit of a generalisation. I don't want to suggest that there are no great books that come out of corporate publishing because there clearly are. But it's um, a vast field. And you will have heard that, you know, when Random House sought to merge with Simon & Schuster, there was that big court case in America. They were saying that some of the, at the bottom end, they struggled to sell, well, more than 12 copies. It was an astonishing fact, but that's what they were saying. The figures have been adjusted, but there are many, many authors who don't reach sales of 100 with them, even though it's a vast corporation. So it's a bit of a lottery. And I think while it's kind of good for the new author. It is much harder to sustain a career over several books. Well, good luck with Reservoir, Livy. What's next for you? Well, true to form, I'm kind of writing something different. I want to go back to the psychological thriller, but I'm kind of very fascinated by Mrs Gaskell, who was a writer who lived in Manchester. So I'm writing about her as well. However, I do want to return to the thriller because it's a constant challenge to create something that you hope is kind of pacing, page turning. Reservoir by Livy Michael is published by Salt. We're talking on Bookmark today, today Matheny Donald, about her book, Not Just for the Boys, Why We Need More Women in Science. And uh, Athene, one of the reasons women have been put off science perhaps girls been put off entering science which I remember actually from my own childhood is this idea that it's just too technical for us that it's a bit mathsy and girls aren't good at that but as you show there's very little evidence to support that it is a typical stereotype for which the evidence is very weak but of course if you start telling girls they're not good at a subject they will turn away from it And so I think we have to worry that those stereotypes persist and are probably not not necessarily explicitly manifest, but subtly manifest in the way schooling is done. So I think there is a lot to overcome in, in the classroom, if you like. But I think in a way it starts even earlier. If you look at children's clothes, you know, it's the boys that have the rockets on their clothes and the girls have unicorns. And you may say there's nothing wrong with unicorns, and that's true. But if you have such very stark differences in the messages you give young children, I think they internalise that. And toys as well, you talk about. And toys as well, absolutely. When I was growing up, Lego was unisex. I mean, it was mainly red and white. And it was just a load of bricks with possibly some windows and doors. And you could do what you like. But now the kits are definitely marketed, even if they don't have labels on them saying for boys or girls. They have pictures of boys or girls. And they are very different kinds of uh, kits. And again, If you give a girl a hairdressing salon and a boy a pirate ship, it is giving a message that possibly wasn't intended, but it will be received. And the idea that women or girls are more creative somehow, so therefore they should move to the humanities, whereas you talk in your book about how creativity is essential in science. 
Yes, and I get quite cross with this idea that creativity is the domain of the arts and humanities. I mean, of course it belongs there. And there are lots of examples. I mean, the music that I'm choosing, for instance, obviously you have to be creative. But if you're going to do original research, if you're going to think seriously about science, you're not just following a well-trodden path. You're trying to think, well, what can I do next? How can I solve this problem? What approach can I use? And everything is creative. Maybe a different kind of creativity, but I don't think we can let the arts and humanities graduates just take it over. And of course, there are lots of men who are married in science and lots of men who are parents, but this is seen as more problematical for women somehow. Yes, uh, that, that's right. It, it's it's a strange thing. And it's just back to stereotypes that somehow the men haven't taken on board that women can do all these things. And I find it strange. I mean, yes, women are thought to be more creative, but they're not meant to be scientists. It, it's just a contradiction. And the bar set higher, do you think, for women or women setting the bar higher for themselves? You've got a quote that says women must demand the right to be as useless as men. Which, yes. <laughs> explain that one. So... There there have been studies which show that if you're judging candidates for a grant or for a position, the women do have to be better because somehow they are mentally marked down. And that's another example of you know totally unconscious behaviour on many people's parts. So I think the bar is higher. Whether women themselves set the bar higher, I think is tricky to know. We can all be very critical of ourselves, and I wouldn't like to say that men aren't critical too. But there has been that research, which you, which you look at in detail, where the same CV has been yes. sent out with a woman's name and a man's name. The man has got the job. Exactly. And the man has been offered a higher salary and offered more training. Um, so, yes, it is quite stark. And again, you know, we should take this beyond just gender, although that's what I focus on, because the same is true if you give different um, names according to supposed ethnicity, for instance. Yes, and that intersectionality that you also talk about, that it's hard for women, it's even harder for black women. Exactly, yes. I think there's absolutely no doubt about that. Well, let's hear your second choice of music now, which is Ilconic by Schubert. Why this one? It's a very dramatic song where the, the singer is both the voice of the parent and the child and they are trying to get home and the child imagines they're being chased by the old king um, and by the time they get home the child is dead and of course this also indicates that the challenges that many parents face trying to balance different strands of their life Bookmark with Lee Chambers on Cambridge 105 Radio. With Heifer's Bookshop, the great Cambridge bookseller since 1876. Our And we're talking on Bookmark today to Dame Athene Donald about her book, Not Just for the Boys, Why We Need More Women in Science. Athene, um, one of the figures that uh, was quite stark in your book, quite shocking in a way, was that globally more women than men enter higher education in the STEM disciplines. But the fall off is rapid indeed, isn't it? Why is that? I think it's multiple reasons. The reasons they start off higher for women, I'm sure, is because of the biological and medical sciences. They fall off for many reasons. 
I mean, that last piece of music was about parenting, if you like. And people often say, oh, it's just because women want to start families. And I do find that a very irritating and facile expression. I think women may find they are working in an environment that is not supportive. And so they choose to go elsewhere. I mean, this is particularly true in higher education. And I don't know if it's as true in industry, which I think has somewhat different attitudes towards support and career development. And so I'm sure there is a lot that can be done. We've talked about the fact that women seem to have to achieve a higher level in order to get the same recognition. So that's another area which will obviously cause women to suffer. And if you're a minority anywhere in a, a sector, a business, a lab... It's going to be hard. You're going to feel isolated. Yes. And I think that that also causes the feeling that I don't want to be here. And so women may choose to do other things. I would like to think many of them choose to continue to use their science. There are many roles where having a science background is hugely important. As you've mentioned, I think this book is for policymakers, amongst others. We need more scientists in the policy arena, more scientific scientifically trained civil servants, for instance. So that's not to say they aren't very valuable where they go, but it may not be what they really wanted to do, and it's a loss. And examples still of harassment and belittling. Yes, exactly. If if your work environment is unpleasant, you're not going to stick around. You use the, the metaphor, the image, if you like, of a leaky pipeline. Do you want to just talk about that? Well, that's a phrase that's often used. It just explains that you start off with this volume of women and slowly they fall by the wayside as you go up the career ladder. Now, some people don't like that metaphor because it implies that it's a sort of passive falling away as opposed to a more active driving away. You know, did they fall or were they pushed kind of thing? Post-COVID, have things changed? I think it's too early to say. People have told me, people who at the time had young children that they were homeschooling, that it made it much more possible for men to talk about the challenges of parenting, of taking their part in the homeschooling. But on the other hand, evidence has also shown that that women took more than 50% of that kind of role. And what happens in the longer term, I think it's still far too early to say. And I do worry that women who were impacted by the need to... Um, particularly for for homeschooling, but there are obviously other um, possible sort of handicaps during the COVID era. That legacy of disadvantage may persist for a very long time and we must not forget it when we're looking at people's CVs in 10 years' time, for instance. Thank you, Athene. Well, let's let's take a little break from science and hear now from Kerry Hadley-Price about her novel. Kerry's first novel, The Black Country, came out in 2015 and was described as a triumph by The Independent on Sunday. Gamble followed three years later and was shortlisted for the 2019 Encore Award. Her latest novel, God's Country, was published earlier this year. And when I spoke to Kerry, I asked her to tell me what the novel's about. Um, Well, it is a novel set in my native black country, which is a place in the um, in the West Midlands, just just the other side of Birmingham. It's a funny place, the black country. And I always set all my novels there. It's a very curious place. And it's so it's a dark novel about a, a man called Guy Flood, who is an identical twin, who is returning to the area, having moved away to the uh, because of the funeral of his identical twin brother called Ivan 
he's coming along with his girlfriend called Alison, and Alison has never been here. So it is through the eyes of Alison that we see the curiosity of the place itself and the strangeness and perhaps eeriness of the people who live here and his family. And and funerals can do this, can't they? They can trigger all kinds of feelings and emotions to come to the yeah. surface. Yes, exactly. And 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 really, I think what the what the novel does is it it kind of hints. Well, it gives some reasons about why he left and why he didn't want to come back. But um, the secrets kind of thing that he left behind, some of them remain secrets, which is, I suppose, what's the hook to the reader is for them to decide what exactly went on although there are some hints. So it, it's it's been described as um, black country noir. Somebody invented this. I I, I don't know who invented that genre. Um, but it is, it's, a, it's a dark novel, really, about family, about homecoming and about place, really. Yeah, place. Uh, you talk about the black country there. It's inspired a lot of your work and you called it Curious mm. there. What is it mm. a, about this place? The interesting thing about the black country is that there are always... Uh, arguments about where where exactly it is it's not like any other place where you can say you are entering the black country now the geographical boundaries of it are not really the definition of where it is because there are no geographical boundaries what people like to do in the black country is they like to argue <laughs> about where where it is uh, i mean this novel actually i should probably say uh, made up part of my phd in black country fiction and so um so i've done a lot of research and spoken to a lot of people about this and one person um suggested an academic suggested that the black country is wherever the dialect dialect is spoken it has a series of different dialects and these dialects can change according to which street you're in for that reason it comes across as being a bit curious and weird but there is a very strong culture of identity here uh, there is a black country flag, for instance. There is a black country day on the 15th of July every year. And yet people will still argue that where I live now, which is in Stourbridge, is not in the black country because it used to be in Worcestershire. Um, and, it, and politically, you know, it moved into the Dudley Metropolitan Borough Council. So, yes, it is a very odd place. Also, it's a peculiar mix and I know there are other places like this, but not like here, of urban and rural. It's known as being the cradle of the Industrial Revolution. So it kind of made its name through making, doing, producing people who were actively making stuff. That's all gone by the wayside now, really. Not all, but a lot of it has. And so what we have are a heck of a lot of what are called industrial ruins, these are factories that are just derelict. They still stand by the canal, for instance, um, or, or in kind of, in sort of industrial areas. They're no longer in use. It means now that the the kind of pastoral has begun to take over what used to be the industrial, and that's one of the reasons why I set God's Country on a farm because there are farms that still do exist in the black country from way before the industrial revolution the families are still there so that you will often find a farm right in the middle of what seems to be this kind of urban industrial wasteland and the odd black sheep hanging around <laughs> um, so so i mean i love it 
Uh, so, <laughs> and it doesn't seem odd to us, but I do know that there are people who come from other other areas and they'll go, this is very strange. <laughs> you know, this so, yeah, very- sounds a bit spooky, actually. Yes, yeah, yes, it does. And I think it brings with it this kind of idea. There are a lot of creative people here, artists and, you know, musicians and so on that kind of land here or come from here. There is something about the area that has a sort of an atmosphere that evokes creativity. Um, What's really interesting is most of them prefer to keep below the radar. There are a lot lot of quite prolific writers, for instance, who outside of the Midlands, I suppose, are, are not really very well known at all. But there was a really interesting writer called Francis Brett Young who wrote, I don't know, about 42 novels or something, some of them set in the Black Country. And then there's Anthony Cartwright who writes novels set in Dudley, particularly good writer. So it does kind of spawn a lot of interesting writing and a lot of creativity for sure. And you can use it, I guess, to make those points, those themes in your novels. Uh, I've spoken to lots of writers who did the same with the fens, you know, that flatness that is quite spooky, where it's quite hard to hide, but there are secrets underneath. Yes, exactly. And I think if you've got an area like the fens, where the geography, and probably in the Black Country's case, um, the geology of the place is really interesting. Part of its definition, in quotation marks, is that there is a coal seam beyond which the black country does become something else uh, within which it is the black country. Um, so so the, the kind of geology of the place is, is really important to a lot of people. And there is a black country geological society, you know, that's that talks about the Dudley bug, which is a specific little fossil uh, that you can only get here. But yes, I think there are certain areas that because of the way the land lies, give it a certain kind of atmosphere and feeling that is related to one of my sort of specialities or what I like to talk about, which is, um, you know, psychogeography, the the psychology of the geography surrounding us. And that that is sort of part of our identity. So, yes, I agree. And I also like the fact that there are more novels being published that are, with the greatest of respect, outside of London. So we don't always have to think, you know, and people from, from other countries don't always think we all live in Trafalgar Square, you know. <laughs> you all live in Buckingham Palace. It's really great that there are plenty more, plenty more of these kinds of novels coming out. And your work's been described as dark and macabre. You're very comfortable with those descriptions? Very. Yeah, yes, I think so. I mean, my first, my first novel was called The Black Country, and I think I'd been thinking about that novel since I was a very small girl. And it sort of sprang from a, a journey that a car journey that I had with my dad through the area at you know as twilight was coming. Yes, I like that kind of tag as being someone who writes dark and and slightly sinister. I suppose it's it's not exactly edge of the seat stuff, and it certainly isn't horror, but it it, it is a little bit sinister. I suppose we all write what comes naturally to us, and I enjoy reading that kind of that kind of stuff. So. Yes, I'm happy with it. And you like playing with the narrative voice as well, the person who's telling the story. Yeah, that's an interesting one, actually, because I think I didn't try to do it. It just happened. So there is a kind of um, omniscient narrator that's quite obviously telling the story. 
but you never find out really who that narrator is. And I think that sort of layers of multiple voices is something that some people find they get into quite quickly and others go, okay, you know, it, it really is a very obvious thing. And, it, and it, it does draw attention to the fact that despite the fact that I'm writing about a particular place that really does exist, and I refer to street names and things that really do exist, that voice draws attention to the fact that actually this is fiction. And, and I think maybe that's why I do it. Also, it is a, it is my comfort zone to write to write in this way. So yes, there is a very particular narrative voice that I've fallen into, really. And what's next for you? Well, I've um, I'm writing another novel, and I've got um, some short stories that have been published online. So yes, I've got another novel that is again set in the Black Country, and it's um, it's about a couple who buy an old house to renovate in the area, and all sorts of strange things happen so yes <laughs> unsurprisingly <laughs> and god's country by carrie hadley price is published by salt we've been talking on bookmark today to dame athene donald about her book not just for the boys why we need more women in science published by oxford university press there's a kind of manifesto Athena, in your book, uh, which is quite lengthy, as you might imagine, of things that need to be done, which, which would is fantastic, would take too long to talk about here. But there are two things that you particularly highlight that, that could help women in STEM, which is amplification and allyship. Can you talk about those two? Indeed. And, and these are both things that I think men can really help with. So amplification is... Partly what I've said already about what happens at committee meetings, if men stand up and say, but Athene just said that, it boosts the strength of the words that we used, if you like. And I think in many situations, men can show they are on the same side and are willing to step in. Now, I think, I mean, the first time I came across this term was in the context of the White House, where it was women backing up other women. I think it was in Obama's White House, and there was quite a lot written about it at the time. Just so that women do not feel isolated, they feel there is a body of people with them um, who are going to make sure that their points don't get lost. Allyship is, is sort of closely related. It is, again, often for the men to say, this woman is serious. She's a, you know, she's got all the credentials you need. You should be taking her seriously in any context. I mean, it's not unrelated to mentoring and sponsorship. So these are things that, you know, it doesn't cost anything to do if you like, and it will, I think, help women, particularly when they're in a minority, so they don't feel so alone. It does require recognition, doesn't it? It does require the man to, to see that the women woman's voice has been overlooked at the meeting. That's right. And I think a lot of this, you know, in one way, what I'd like most for my book to achieve is that people talk about this more. Because I think many people do things that are 
unhelpful without having any intention of doing so. Let's face it, women are just as biased as men. They may be biased about different things. We all make assumptions. We all stereotype. It's a natural thing to do. I believe it's kind of evolutionary thing to do. So you know if that that animal's going to eat you or not. So you, you try and make snap judgments. And I think the more we look at our processes, look at what happens when we are appointing people for a job, for instance, and tease out where our inbuilt stereotypes may be handicapping a minority such as a woman. Do you feel optimistic about the future? I hope so. I mean, the dedication is to my granddaughters. They are three and six, so they're not going to be reading the book just now. Um, But I would like to think that they will grow up in a different world. Am I optimistic? We've been talking about this for a very long time and change is happening, but it's slow. And some of these things have a long way to go before we get a level playing field. Where does it need to start this change? Is it a, is it a political thing? I think there are a huge number of different strands. I think every individual has to think about their own behaviour. I think we need to think about toys, as I've mentioned. We need to think about the, the messages children receive very early on that, that will then impact on their subsequent choices. We need to look at uh, how schools operate, how universities, jobs, all of this. It, it's multifaceted. And what's next for you? Now, I know you're, you're promoting this book at the moment and, and it's causing a, a few ripples and stirs here and there. What's next for you after that? That's an interesting question and I don't have an answer. I've got another 18 months as Master of Churchill, so I'm obviously starting to think about what comes next. And to some extent, you know, I've put decisions on hold while I see what happens with this book. People say, have you got another book in you? I have no idea. And and what a career you've had, as I said, you're a dame, you're a professor, you're a writer. Is there anything that you would have liked to have done that you've not done? Oh, I'm sure I would have done things differently. I I think most of the decisions in my life have happened by chance and luck rather than a very conscious career path. And I don't think I regret anything I've done. And you've been an inspiration yourself to other women coming up the ranks, no doubt. So I'm told. It's slightly hard to internalise that sometimes. (laughs) And a question that we ask all our featured guests on Bookmark, what are you reading at the moment? So the book I'm reading at the moment is quite an old book. I think it was written possibly in the 80s. Uh, It's called Albion Seeds, and it's about the early uh, British emigrants who settled in the States and the different cultures. Um, It's by someone called David Hackett Fisher. And it just, it helps to understand how America itself has developed as a nation. Well, we'll come back to you in just a moment for your last choice of music. But a heads up that our next show, our featured guest is Laura Freeman talking about her book, Ways of Life, Jim Ede and the Kettle Yard Artists. We'll hear from Rachel Meller in an exploration of her family's past in her book, The Box with the Sunflower Clasp. And Antonia Byatt will be chatting about the first story, Young Writers Festival, that took place in Cambridge. But we'll sign out now with your last choice of music, Athena, which is an absolute banger. Uh, I Will Survive by Gloria Gaynor. Why this one? Well, I think it's such a good strapline, isn't it? If you're feeling life is against you, to put this on and listen to it and think, yep, I will survive. It doesn't have to be about a broken heart. It can be anything that's sort of left you reeling. You can pick yourself up again. But then I spent so many nights thinking how you did me wrong and I grew strong. Bookmark with Lee Chambers on Cambridge 105 Radio.